This is an ABC podcast. Social media is wonderful. It connects people and ideas. But someone needs to keep it nice. That's what moderators do. Yeah, when you come in, you kind of have this idea that you're there to save the general public from all this terrible content. You're there to protect people and preserve freedom of speech and democracy and prevent extremism. But after a while, you're just on this treadmill, just trying to give them the right answer. Hi, Damien Kerrick here. This is The Law Report. On Monday night, Australian time... Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg met with top European Union officials to discuss ways to better regulate social media. But whatever the regulatory framework, what are the consequences on the armies of moderators who work to weed out toxic content? I think that content moderation is a kind of new, unsung, almost firefighter job of the of the internet world because this is where our public conversation takes place now, on Facebook, on social media, on YouTube, and without the work that Chris Gray and the tens of thousands of others like him worldwide do, without that work, social media couldn't exist. You and I would not set foot in an unmoderated Facebook, and we certainly wouldn't let our children use it. So yes, they are laboring hard to keep our public conversations healthy. And it's, it's tough work, and the work they do to keep us safe, it turns out, has put them at risk. One former Facebook moderator was so traumatised that he's commenced personal injury litigation. And I should warn that today's program describes some very disturbing online content. Back in July 2017, Chris Gray, who lives in Dublin, Ireland, was really excited about starting a new job. Oh, it's fabulous. It's so exciting because it's this you know, huge glass building and you go in, there's a big open atrium in the middle and it's all panelled wood and artwork and green plants and free food. You know, you really feel like you've, you've landed with a great employer. Did you work directly for Facebook or for a company which was engaged by Facebook to moderate content for them? You're almost always working for a staffing agency. And you worked for CPL, right? That's right. So they're one of the, I guess, the four big players in this industry. CPL are very big in Ireland. Uh, there's Accenture, who are worldwide. Arvato, based out of Germany. And there's an American mob, Cognizant, who are very big and you ended up working for this company for about 10, 11 months. Is that right? Yeah, it's about the very few people are there for a full year because after 12 months, you have a lot more employment rights. So a lot of us found ourselves being eased out after 9, 10, 11 months. Were you eased out or was it the nature of the work which caused you to... No, I, I was eased out. I think while you're there, certainly for that period of time, you don't really realise what it's doing to you. Well, let's come to what you did and, and what it did to you. What did your role as a moderator involve? Well, I mean, the process is pretty straightforward. You know, you see something that you don't like on Facebook, so you press that report button and it's going to ask you why you're reporting it because you think it's pornography or you think it's promoting terrorism or bullying or whatever. And that then sends that piece of content into a queue to be moderated. So I would be looking at the high priority queue, which is the, you know, the really nasty stuff, the bullying and the blood and gore. Other people will be working with stuff that's been reported for um, pornography or for spam, you know, people trying to make money out of Facebook. So it comes into a queue, 
and you just start working through the queue. And there can be thousands, tens of thousands of you know, pieces of content, tens of thousands of tickets in the queue. You compare it to the rules and the regulations that you've been given and you make a decision whether it's okay or not, whether it can stay up or whether it should be taken down. How many pieces of content would you be expected to adjudicate on over the course of a working day? It would kind of depend on what cues you're working, what kind of work you're doing. So when I started, I was actually just looking at pornography all day, naked ladies. And you could easily get through a thousand tickets a night. And then later on, I was on the high priority queue, which is a little bit more complex. So probably 600 up to 800 per night. And this high priority queue, what sort of material were you exposed to when you were moderating that kind of material? Well, we've got to be honest here and say that a lot of it was actually just tedious, boring rubbish. You know, people are squabbling and they're using this reporting tool as a a weapon against each other. And then the next shot is an ISIS terrorist execution or a mass killing or... Yeah, just that kind of general, really evil nastiness. Also, a lot of racism, a lot of there are groups in the UK just peddling hatred. Every night you'd be hearing their arguments, listening to their rubbish. You say that there's this spectrum of material, some of it quite tedious. In the legal writ, the statement of claim, the papers lodged with the High Court of Dublin, they talk about what you were exposed to, footage of, of a woman being stoned to death somewhere in the Middle East people being tortured with with molten metal, dogs being cooked alive. You were on occasion exposed to devastatingly confronting and terrible material. It's hard to even describe it, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I mean, you're totally desensitised to it while you're doing the work and and you're focused just on applying the rules. You're, You're not really processing what you're seeing. I think that tends to come later. What effect did this have on your well-being and when did those harms or effects begin to emerge for you? I think it, it just slowly builds up over time, but you don't even realise what's going on, the impact. You don't understand how it's affecting you. And it was really when I left and I had to come home and tell my wife, you know, hey, I've just been walked out of the building. And the relief on her face, she said, you have become such a morose bad-tempered, argumentative, you know, you you rear up at every little thing. You've become an awful person since you started that job. So that was, what, back in 2018 that that you walked out. Do you think that the effects of this work have stayed with you? Oh, absolutely. I had three jobs in the first year after I left, and and I quit each one or was asked to move on from each one after some meaningless conflict with somebody. I'm rearing up. I'm getting into arguments with people that are avoidable because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm on this hair trigger. I just can't deal with stuff. I'm super emotional, super sensitive. And now, you know, we're a year further down the line and I'm, I'm learning to manage it and I'm in therapy. Chris Gray, can we go back to when you were working for, for CPL and talk about the, the work processes and, and the work conditions. So you're going through this queue of reported material. Are your decisions and the time you take to make them, are they being audited or monitored? 
Oh, absolutely. We have a number called the AHT, average handling time, and that is how long does it take you to process each piece of content, which I think for most of the stuff I was doing would have been about 30 seconds. So there's, a, you know, there's a lot of time pressure. And this is, this is terrifying because you know that somebody else might come along later on to audit your work for quality control. Because somebody is going to take a, like a, a representative sample of what you've done in any given week or month, and they're going to review and make their own judgments. And if your judgments are different from theirs, then you know, that counts as a quality mistake. And you're only allowed 2% quality mistakes. So if, if they're going to review a couple of hundred tickets, then you're only allowed four mistakes. So after a while, you start to obsess about justifying decisions rather than, you know, what you're seeing, what's what's happening in front of you. You're not processing the material. You're just worried about making sure you don't get fired. You know, I, I can remember arguing with an auditor about whether a baby is dead. And nobody, nobody cares whether the baby's dead. We just care about who's right because somebody's got to have made a mistake in, in this quality control argument. The rules are very, very precise and granular, and you have to, you know, you have to choose reason number ninety-three, not number eighty-seven. Mm. Otherwise, you made a mistake, and you you could get fired for that. And Chris, what sort of support was on offer when you found this? You and your workmates found this kind of content and these kinds of work processes difficult to deal with. Well, there was a. They were called the wellness team who it turns out were just an outsourcing company that has been called in to you know, provide a service. None of them were trained counsellors or therapists. They seem to have a, you know, kind of degrees in sports psychology and you know, that kind of stuff. And they're there to help you along. And they would run occasional training sessions. They would be called maybe building resilience or something, but it's all... Yeah, yoga and finger painting, basically. You would get these emails inviting you to come along later on. We're going to be colouring in mandalas or something. And we would all look at each other like, who's got time for that? I've got targets to meet. And then you could ask for a one-on-one session. Did you approach the people at the, at the wellness centre? I mean, did you seek support? Yeah, I had, I had a couple of one-hour sessions with a counsellor, an advisor, whatever they were called. They they sit and they listen, they nod and smile and tell you to, you know, maybe you can download a meditation app or something, and then they send you back to work. And they they don't have any power to say, well, you you need to step back and take a few days off, do some kind of therapy. They don't have any power to do that. If you take time off, you're not getting paid. Chris Gray, who tells me he was paid the equivalent of 21 Australian dollars an hour when he worked the day shift and a little more when he worked nights. He's the lead plaintiff in a test case lodged in the High Court of Dublin. His lawyer, Diane Trina from Coleman Solicitors, tells me that the representative action is open to Facebook moderators across Europe and over two dozen plaintiffs have joined the litigation so far. There is also similar litigation underway in the USA. I did approach Facebook Australia for an interview about both this issue and the work of moderators more generally, but I didn't receive a response. So 
I'm Damien Carrick and this is The Law Report on Radio National. And of course, you can subscribe to the program on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you do like the podcast, please give us a rating and a review. It really helps others find the show. Lawyer Corey Crider works for Foxglove. It's a London-based non-profit organisation that works to keep big tech accountable. She estimates that there are at least 15,000 Facebook moderators across the globe and each year they remove literally billions of toxic items. Billions. Absolutely billions. I mean, think of it this way, right? There are billions of users of Facebook uploading millions and millions and millions of items a day. I mean, the other thing is, right, when when content moderation happens, they're not taking down the original offending piece. They're dealing with it every time it's reported. So, for example, the video of the Christchurch shooting was uploaded something like over a million times in 24 hours. Some of those were caught by automation, but of hundreds and thousands of them, had to be caught by individual content moderators taking the Christchurch video off because it was reposted so many times. Let's talk about this litigation, which has been that the lead plaintiff is Chris Gray and it's being done out of Ireland. Uh, why do you think this litigation is important and what might it achieve? So the reason that Foxglove decided to support the litigation and is supporting all these cases for content moderators is that social media's factory floor is unsafe and it's time to clean it up. You should think of it like an early 20th century factory in America or a Nike sweatshop, right? The conditions are unsafe for the workers and until social media improves those conditions, Tens of thousands of people are going to have their lives chewed up and destroyed by the conditions in which they have to work. You use the term um, digital sweatshop workers, and I've also seen uh, this kind of work being described as digital janitors. But unlike people who clean physical spaces, these moderators are not provided with proper equipment to do their job safely. No. In fact, there's a real tension here in uh, Facebook's business imperative to train artificial intelligence. And what it says is its goal to protect its moderators. Let me show you what I mean. When content moderators were first scaling up to this size, to a workforce of tens of thousands, there were probably about maybe five categories of answer that you had to give to take a piece of content offline, something like that, five, half a dozen. And they'd be very basic. It's bullying, it's graphic violence, stuff like that. Now, there are hundreds. There are over 200 categories. The way that the content moderators have to label the images is so granular that it makes no sense to you as a user. Do you or I care if a violent video is taken off of Facebook because it shows internal organs versus it shows dismemberment? No, we don't care. So what's the purpose of that? Why are these content moderators having to watch it very specifically, very closely, every second of a horrible video? Is it for us to get a very specific reason? No, it's because they're image labeling to potentially train, I think, artificial intelligence. In other words, to kind of try and fulfill Facebook's business imperative to train up the machines that might one day replace them. I mean, the other thing I want to say is the companies know that this work causes post-traumatic stress disorder. A document was published in the Financial Times a couple of weeks ago showing that Accenture, a giant software firm that does this content moderation outsourcing work for Facebook, is now making every single content moderator sign an acknowledgement that says, I understand 
that I may get PTSD from this work and effectively tries to push the responsibility onto the individual worker. So the companies know, but instead of doing more to try to make the workplace safe, they're just trying to push liability onto the individual content moderator. What needs to be done? What do you think can come from this litigation? What are the very specific ways forward that you would hope might become widespread as a result of this litigation? There are a number of reforms that Foxglove wants to see. One is that they take steps to reduce people's exposure to toxic content. We also believe that there should be proper medical, psychological, and psychiatric support for everyone, including after they have had to be injured and go out of the job, uh, and not kind of group therapy and yoga and finger painting, right? I'm not saying that group therapy doesn't have a role, but basically most of the people who engage with these folks are not doctors, even though... It is a medical condition. It is giving people post-traumatic stress disorder. So proper and meaningful medical support. And really, I think, and I'm not a, psych- I'm not a psychiatrist, right? A, a t- an independent team of mental health experts needs to come in and look at this and really assess, like, what is the acceptable level of risk? How much exposure to a beheading or to child abuse can a human take uh, without an unacceptable risk of contracting post-traumatic stress disorder? And the level needs to be set at that. And then finally, again, you've got these bright young people. They're not janitors. They are more like editors or judges. And they come in and they think they're going to work for one of the most exciting companies in the world. They think they're going to work for Facebook or YouTube or Google, and maybe they'll rise up in a software company. And of course, that's not what happens. Uh, They're bright, they're young, they get chewed up, spit out, and basically have their lives ruined. And then that's it. There's no aftercare, there's no apology, there's no compensation. And I really think that actually these companies, when they can afford it, should should compensate the people whose lives that they've ruined. Mark Zuckerberg is worth something like $70 billion, right? The idea that he can't afford to clean up his workplace and treat his workers better just doesn't wash. He did apparently in a in leaked audio from a meeting at Facebook, I think in October last year, Zuckerberg described reports of moderated trauma as, quote, a little overdramatic. But he did go on to say, quote, but there are really bad things that people have to deal with and making sure that people get the right counselling and, and space and the ability to take breaks and get the mental health support they need is a really important thing. End of quote. So there is some kind of understanding of the need to do this. The problem is this. They say that they want to look after people. They say that they want to get it right, but they're not spending the money, quite frankly, that would be required to get it right, to limit people's exposure to toxic content. That would mean having a lot more people to get proper medical health in. Well, doctors often cost money. It's trying to get it done on a cheap, low-cost solution, but the cost is is worker safety and, and worker health. I guess I'm mindful in a globalised world where Different people have different rights depending on what country they live in. I mean, might we see that this kind of work migrates away from highly regulated developed countries with tight regulation towards the Philippines uh, and maybe other places? And could we see a two-tier worker rights situation, more than we have already? Look, of course that's always a risk. But I think if there is enough reputational damage to the companies generally, there will come a point when they want to show that actually they have started to clean things up. It doesn't mean that people are all going to be paid the same. uh, But I think if we're talking about improvements to the technology, for example, where you don't see uh, certain kinds of content more than a certain number of times, that should be a global standard. Activist lawyer Corey Crider from Foxglove 
And where does Australia fit in? Do we have armies of Facebook moderators here? To the best of my knowledge, no, they don't. They tend to offshore the moderation for this area into areas like the Philippines. Jennifer Beckett is a senior lecturer in media and communications at the University of Melbourne. It could have something to do with our labour laws. Um, I wouldn't be surprised, though, if they did start to build a small cohort of moderators in Australia, and that would be as a response to the government's legislation around um, violent material being streamed. You're talking there about the legislation which followed the Christchurch attack. Australia introduced tough new laws, I think it's called the Sharing of Abhorrent Violent Material Act, which requires social media platforms to remove material and very, very swiftly and refer it to police, right? Yeah, it requires them to take it down swiftly. It's not very good at defining what they mean by swiftly. Recently in Thailand, it was a mass shooting in a shopping mall and the role of of Facebook was quite complex in that terrible crime, wasn't it? Yeah, it was really, really complex. In fact, this is a really good news story for Facebook. People in Thailand were able to be got out of the shopping complex because they sent messages, Facebook messages, to a celebrity doctor in Thailand who then started to communicate with the Thai police and let them know where people were stuck inside the uh, shopping centre and what was going on inside there. So they were able to facilitate basically a rescue and the takedown of the gunman via Facebook. And at the same time, there was criticism of Facebook because I think the the shooter was actually posting on Facebook, not violent images, but nevertheless posting on Facebook from the scene of the crime. Yes, he was, but he had also posted on Facebook quite a few images prior to the attack, which you know, when you look at them, are sort of quite troublesome. And he posted a lot of of things about how disaffected he was as well. So, you know, I think that there are sort of warning signs and we see them on all of the social media platforms. So even with things like the Christchurch massacre, that perpetrator had been posting that kind of commentary on Facebook and on other social media platforms previously. So there's sort of a bit of a pattern of behaviour that seems to be showing up now for these things. So I guess the shooting in Thailand, the shooting in New Zealand goes to both the importance of having very, very highly skilled moderators being able to react immediately to Mm. to very complex, incredibly difficult situations. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think this is something that a lot of people don't necessarily know about most moderators, not just Facebook moderators, but they are highly skilled and all of them, to my knowledge, have actually got university degrees and from good institutions because moderation is an incredibly contextual job. So, you know, having background in in the humanities, in history and sociology and all sorts of things is kind of part of what you need in order to make some of those decisions and to make them well. And tell me about some of the other crimes where Facebook have been very important in alerting police to what's going on and perhaps saving lives. There's also um, instances where they've been able to get not necessarily police but medical services and mental health services to people who were live streaming sort of suicidal ideation and things like that. So they've been really, really good um, in connecting people to some of those services as well. That's part of 
what they do and it's actually part of the job of moderators as well to flag that. I think there were instances where this was not necessarily actually, this was against the police in those instances. So some instances in um, America where police officers had pulled over African-American drivers and were threatening them and um, shootings. And so people had actually uh, videoed and live streamed that on Facebook as a form of um, activism and and action. and, And that had actually enabled some court cases to go ahead. And again, that gets to a very difficult conundrum for Facebook which and other social media where there might be violent images. Is this graphic violence, is it exploitative and abusive to let it be online or is it citizen journalism, is it accountability? That This is a very, very tricky area for them as well. Yeah, and I think your point about citizen journalism is a really, really interesting one. And, you know, particularly, you know, we saw a lot of it with the Arab Spring, for example, but that was before the streaming services came in. So they've been very, very important in some instances and they're very proud of the um, participation that they had in those events. But, you know, not all democracies are created equal to some extent. And so what's great in one circumstance might be the London riots in another where also they were used to help organise things as well. So To, to organise the criminal behaviour um, yeah. as opposed to what we might call democratic activism. Yeah, exactly. Jennifer Beckett from the University of Melbourne. Looking back, former moderator Chris Gray says knowing how best to deal with toxic material was not always clear. I mean, I, I wasn't aware really of the argument at that time that, say, somebody posted videos of terrible things happening in Syria. Well, these are war crimes and you're deleting the evidence. And there was no thought to given to anything like that. But then you might see child abuse. You, know, you, you desperately want to be able to do something about this. And no, you, your job is to just follow the rules and implement Facebook's policy. Do you report it? Do you refer it to police or other authorities? Where there are guidelines on when you should do that and when you shouldn't. So there are certain situations where we just call it escalating. It just gets reported and passed on to somebody else to deal with. And presumably there's no kind of feedback. You don't know what's happened to any of this content that you've sought to escalate to police. I never had any feedback from anybody, but I did... About two months ago, I got an email from a lady in the US who works for her local police force, and she deals with you know, child abuse, this kind of stuff. And she told me that there had recently been a conviction, somebody was jailed as the result of something that was passed on to them by the Facebook uh, response team. So th- there is good being done in the background here somewhere, but it's not passed back to us. We never knew that it was happening. We never knew the results. Chris Gray, what do you want to come out from this litigation? Because the work is always going to be traumatising, right? It's going to be difficult. Now, I'm in therapy right now, which seems to be working. And the feeling I'm getting from talking to professionals is that you could actually teach people to deal with this stuff on an ongoing basis. It doesn't need to become full-blown PTSD. It sounds like if you really take this seriously, people would be able to do the work with the proper level of support and carry on doing it. And then that's great for Facebook and YouTube and so on as well because it means you build up 
more experience. You know, you get a team of people who've been doing it for years. I, mean, I don't know if you have kids or, or young relatives, somebody that you care about. Imagine they're being bullied or stalked or blackmailed or radicalized, misled down the garden path into, into all kinds of trouble. Who's going to deal with that? Do you want that to be dealt with by somebody who's stressed, afraid of losing their job? They've only been there six months anyway with, with a couple of weeks of training. Or do you want that to be dealt with by a mature professional with years of experience and they're comfortable in their work and secure in their position and they're just focused on doing the right thing for that person? It's a no-brainer, isn't it? Former Facebook moderator Chris Gray. That's the Law Report. A big thanks to producer Anita Barrow and to sound engineer Jack Montgomery. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.